Do you want to know what I have discovered? I have discovered that time is a fool's illusion. Fools think of time as a steam engine roaring down a track, passing station after station, heading to more stations yet unknown. The long track is the past, the present, and the future. But all of this is illusion. Time does not exist. We do not live on a steam engine. We live in a vast and intricate painting that is already finished. Because we are part of it, we cannot step out to observe the masterpiece in its entirety. Hidden in the painting are billions of tiny holes that lead to other paintings. Fools say there is neither hell nor heaven. I envy them their blindness. I do not know if there is a heaven. But I have passed through a hundred holes into a thousand hells. Clown shaman that I am, I have staggered into worlds of darkness and horror, attacked and savaged, consumed with the passion that is destroying my soul. And what has it left me? Empty. Where am I going? Deeper. Why am I going? I cannot stop. From the secret journal of Corneal Augustus Moon, found in the hidden room, entry dated November 22nd, 1872. You are listening to Dagon's Illusion, Episode 1, The Sacrifice. He was the master of it, the master of the living death, of soul separation, of leaving the body behind, of traveling in the spirit and then returning. Robert Dagon was the master of astral projection, and this is what it felt like. Sitting in the chair, sitting, feeling the cool leather, feeling legs, arms, body, the weight of the flesh pressing down, head against the cushion, focusing, beginning to focus the eyes, softening memory, following the path inward, aware of the heartbeats, the air moving in and out of the lungs, breathing, 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 feeling the trance deepen, the body beginning to sleep, yet the mind awake, eyes closing, awareness growing, the start of the separation, seeing with the second set of eyes, seeing through the closed eyelids, the beginning of projection, without moving the body, turning to look behind, seeing the room behind the chair, the tree outside the window, the door to the staircase. Now the buzz, the vibration deep within, heart beating faster, loosening from the flesh, the duplicate of himself rising out of himself, the utter strangeness of it, seeing straight ahead through his closed eyelids, yet at the same time slowly drifting upward and seeing with his other eyes the eyes of the projected spirit. He remembered the first time, so long ago just a boy. Terror had done it then, loosened him, and more terror had come afterward. Others might find it easy to leave the flesh, but for him, no matter how many times he did it, the act was vaguely disturbing, and he had done it thousands of times. 
Few understood the process of projection. They thought that when you left your body, it remained like an empty shell until you re-entered. Wrong. Projection was the creation of a duplicate, a complete copy of you. The only thing missing was the flesh. And each awareness, the one in the physical body and the one outside, remained awake while the flesh grew heavy in trance. The concept was frightening. Duplicates of the same mind sharing every memory, yet knowing, feeling, seeing, smelling different realities in a kind of controlled schizophrenia. In this dual state, he could think from two different perspectives at the same time, shifting back and forth at will from the awareness in the chair to the awareness traveling through other dimensions. After many years as an experienced projector, he could choose which mind would dominate. Most of the time it was the awareness outside the flesh, but even in the longest journeys, when he felt the farthest from his body, he could switch back and see what the mind in the flesh was seeing. Today, in the cool quiet of the morning, the projection was simple and smooth. The final snap, full dislocation. Instantly, in his spirit form, he was floating on his back with his nose two inches from the sculpture on the ceiling. Sometime in the distant past, someone had decided to carve a monstrous eight-foot crucifix into the central beam of the room, and inexplicably, the artist had sculpted the figure hanging face down, so when you stood under it, it felt as though the gigantic thing was falling from the sky to crush you. He hated it with its wanly painted flesh, an agonized stare, its arms stretched out with carved nails, pinning wooden hands to wood. The wound in its side looked as though it was about to gush all over the floor. He could hate it all he wanted. The crucifix couldn't be removed. It was a work of art, registered with the state. Why his spirit body always wound up under it after dislocation was an aggravating mystery. He could project from anywhere in the mansion. It didn't matter. Always he was drawn straight to the damned thing, so he had given up fighting it. Except for the crucifix, he loved the tower room, rising as it did above the trees, drenched with sunlight, windows open, lush with the fragrant breezes of a dewy morning. All he had to do was get through the hanging Jesus— and through was exactly what he meant. It was a strange and wonderful fact that he could sense the physical when he was outside the physical. When he had left his body behind, he could pass through a wall or ceiling and feel each layer. First the cool plaster and the wire mesh that held it, then the fleecy fibers of insulation, after that the bricks and mortar, each stratum was different. But before he could get to them, he had to gag his way through the Son of God, so there was always a dark moment at the beginning of every journey. As his spirit form moved through the icon, he would shiver with a terrible coldness. The wood wasn't normal wood. It was more like frozen leather, and the smell, the hideous thing, was suffused with a stench of blood. Had the artist actually soaked it in real blood? That seemed insane. But this was New Orleans, and New Orleans had always been a home to a fetid stew of Roman Catholics. There was no telling what a papist sculptor might decide to do in an epileptic fit of devotion. Thankfully, the blood stench lasted only a moment. Leaving the flesh was like being a deep-sea diver jumping out of a boat. 
your duplicate awareness entered dimensions full of wonder and terror, and just like a diver in the ocean, the spiritual traveler depended upon his lifeline. Inexperienced projectors always had a fear about this. They were afraid their lifelines might break, and they would drift forever, unable to get home. As a master of the art, he had no such fear. Nevertheless, out of nothing more than mild superstition, he always checked his line. Slowly he turned in the air and glanced backward. There it was, the thin silver cord so delicate and translucent in its beauty. And his body was visible. That was very important since his experience in prison. Exactly where the cord was attached to his non-physical form he didn't know. It ran from some place on his back down to the flesh seated in the chair. As fragile as it appeared, it could stretch through eons of time and space, deep into distant dimensions, and when he chose to return, it would jerk him back to reintegrate with the self in the tower. Solomon, that brilliant hermetic adept of long ago, had understood. Otherwise, how could he have known to write these words? Or ever the silver cord be loosed, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Return to God who gave it? He had deep reservations about that. But the silver cord wasn't just a poetic metaphor. That's exactly how the lifeline appeared, and his was firmly in place. Flipping over, he stared at the long, goy nose of the crucifix, holding his breath. Yes, though he had no physical body, he could do that. He willed himself through the coldness and the odor. After that, it was upward, through the wood panels on the ceiling, then the plywood and the roofing paper, last of all, the rough graininess of the shingles, and outside, free. Such a beautiful morning. For a moment he drifted above the trees, enjoying the sunrise. If it had been raining, his spirit form would have felt the rain as it traveled through him, yet he would have remained dry. What a mysterious delight to sense the physical yet be completely apart from it. The day was going to be hot and humid. He could feel the dampness drifting through him. He wished that he could remain and enjoy the cool, but there was no time. This was not a journey for pleasure. He had work to do. Focusing his mind, he shot straight up into the sky. In a single thought, he was 200 miles above the earth. Of course, at this height, words like above and below had no meaning. He was floating in airless space. Before him, the great rim of the planet hung in starry blackness, so beautiful and horrible. A world like no other, and he had seen many. Turning, he stared out at the universe, empty, good. It appeared that he was alone. Of course, that didn't mean that he was actually alone. The airless vacuum could be teeming. Long ago he had learned that this region of shadows was a point of transition, a fact apparently unknown to the idiots of NASA and their counterparts around the world. They didn't seem to be aware that with their space stations, shuttle programs, and moon launches, they were sending little defenseless crews into a battle zone. Or maybe they were aware. It was a fascinating thought. Someday he would research it with a few carefully planned astral projections to the appropriate governmental agencies. To visit such centers of darkness, a projector had to be very clever at camouflage because they were always infested. To enter them was like using a filthy restroom and not washing your hands. You never knew what you might carry away with you. 
Right now, in the shadow region, all was quiet. But that could change in a heartbeat. Not good to stay here too long. The first time he had traveled to this height, he had been so frightened and fascinated that he hadn't noticed several important details. That mistake had cost him. He had vowed never to make it again. Stealing himself, he looked straight down at the earth. He was above the western hemisphere. The downward view always disturbed him most because in this form he could see things beyond the ability of any astronaut locked into the flesh. He could see the fires of transition. That's what he called them. The spirit view of Earth was breathtaking in its beauty and horror. Every continent was burning. Jagged sheets of translucent flame rose and fell, sweeping like vast oceans across the planet. The colors were stunning. Most of the fires were blue and green, but on every continent there were gigantic blood-red clumps like gushing fountains. The first time he had seen Earth this way, he had thought there had been some kind of attack and it was being destroyed. Slowly he had come to understand what it was. The fires that swept the continents were masses of tiny sparks shooting toward the sky. And each spark was the spirit of a creature leaving a physical body in death. The blue and the green were plants and animals. The blood-red fountains were people, human souls departing the flesh forever. The gushing clumps were centered on cities because that's where most people died. It was a hideous, beautiful vision, and every year the fires grew larger as the population rose. The flames were far greater in some areas than in others. Africa was the worst. Except for the deserts, it was an inferno of blue and green and crimson. Then came Asia, and if a war was going on anywhere, well, to think about it put him into a state of despair. The earth, his home, the planet that he loved, was in an endless state of dying. Could a planet have an aura? Several times he believed that he had seen it. Rising from the rim between light and darkness was a thin, fluctuating ripple of gray miasma that could only mean disease. What was causing this planet to be such a center of death? Was it war, pollution, global warming? Was it selfishness? Was it greed? He had come to believe that these were only symptoms of the real disease, a soul sickness that he could not name. And it was in him. Someday his spirit would enter the fires of transition. Where it would go, he had no idea. Not all went to the same place. In his travels, he had never seen a heaven, but he had experienced the intense horror of many hells. Trying to avoid them was the goal of his life, trying to choose good, not evil, which brought him back to the purpose for this journey. Focusing his awareness, he streaked down toward the Atlantic Ocean. Then, dead stop. How high? 50,000 feet. That was what he had chosen, and his mind was more accurate than any altimeter. The spiritual mechanics were a mystery to him, but he didn't need to understand them any more than he needed to understand how a transmission worked in order to drive a car. From this height, he could get a clear view of the target zone, a broad expanse of water 300 miles off the coast of Florida. The day was cloudless. From where he was, no waves were visible, only a glistening sheet of blue. He began searching, scanning. It was down there someplace. The specific form it would take, he didn't know, but he was certain that he would recognize it. There! A patch of silver. Another thought, and he was at 5,000 feet. 
Instantly, he was blanketed in an invisible cloud of sickly, sweet, rotting fumes that almost overwhelmed him. On the surface of the ocean lay a slowly undulating mass that gleamed in the sun like a silver mantle. Floating beneath him for miles were millions of dead fish. In the shimmering heat, their bellies slowly peeled and burst, gushing soft plumes of oily putrescence that shivered on the swells. And no birds, no screeching gulls to swoop and tear. The sky was empty. What clearer sign did he need? From this place, all living things had flown away. Willing himself down, he hovered ten feet above the gently bumping mass, thick sluggish air, reeking humidity. The fact that in this form he had no stomach didn't matter. He still felt nausea. For some reason in his projected body, all his senses were excruciatingly acute. Beauty was far more beautiful, and conversely, so with ugliness and horror. Struggling to control his desire to retch, he tried to think. Should he pass through the fish into the water and continue searching? To do so would be nasty, but beyond the discomfort, it would make his presence known. Not that he cared about the humans who had perpetrated this monstrosity, he had no fear of them, but the thing below, the thing that they had summoned, if it became aware of him, that would not be good. Certainly, at this moment, it would be awake to the stench of the sacrifice. Not just the physical odor, the metaphysical invitation. What he didn't want was for it to smell him, and every spirit had a unique aroma. If it caught his scent and liked it, it would be like Captain Hook and the crocodile. But why wasn't it appearing? It should have been here by now. He had to see it. Just one more look. So where was it? The damnable things were always ravenous. Perhaps he should risk entering the water. He could fly out beyond the reeking mass, go under, then double back. As he hesitated, no more searching was necessary. From the depths came an eerie moan. Not good. It sounded female, and females were the worst. Finding a small patch of bare water in the mass of dead fish, he tried to focus his vision downward. Not easy. The sacrifice was much more than a physical barrier. It was spiritually blinding. Still, he could make out a little. Far below, a dim glow was rising, flowing upward from deep within the gash between the continents, the rift torn open when the crust of the planet had shattered so long ago. And in the glow was a gigantic form. It was female. When it broke the surface, he knew what would happen, a roiling orgasm of the vilest pleasure as it consumed the floating rot. But the taste would only whet its appetite. When the fish were gone, it would swirl and scream for more. That was the whole plan. When it shrieked, a million dark spirits would answer, swarming around it like filthy gnats. The glow was brighter, the form clearer. Time to vacate, back up to a thousand feet, and not a moment too soon. Faster than he could have thought possible, it breached, but just its mouth. Then began the sucking, shrieking. All the miles of dead fish disappeared into a twisting vortex. After that came the orgasm, such nauseating pleasure at the taste of death. How had they grown to love death so much? As he watched it happen, for a single second her head rose above the waves. In spite of himself he was stunned. The rendition in the grimoire had not done her justice. 
She was utterly beautiful. The lovely shadow of heaven remained even in the horror of the fallen. And he knew what she had been called. Morgulas. Enough. Now home. Instantly the silver cord snapped him back and the two minds, the two awarenesses, reintegrated. It was a difficult action, but one that he had mastered long ago. If the reintegration wasn't done with exacting care, the memory of the physical would transcend and submerge that of the traveling duplicate, and all the knowledge he had gained would be lost. He would remember nothing more than a trance-deep nap in the tower. Memory check. Excellent. Both memories existed side by side, and with them the dull throb of a sinus headache. The pain had flashed over him several times while he had been traveling, but he had forced himself to ignore it. At least it wasn't a migraine. He was prone to those gut-spewing brain agonies. Any time he soul-traveled, one of the monsters could come on him full-blown in a matter of minutes. Then he would spend days in a dark room wanting to die because medicine didn't help unless he caught it early. Slowly he made himself relax. With such complex visualizations as he had experienced today, it was important to structure the dual memories with great care. The headache was making it hard to focus. Sometimes it felt as though his whole life had been one long chain of sinus headaches, interspersed with migraines from hell. He pressed the balls of his hands into his eye sockets. Why would a man with chronic sinusitis and a thousand allergies choose to live in Louisiana, a state where the primary agricultural product was weeds? Why would he choose to live in New Orleans, a city built entirely of mold? The flowers on his estate had been featured on the Home and Garden Channel. They had also been the lead story in Allergy Today, with a color photograph of him having a mucus-spewing attack in a sea of azaleas. He had grown to hate flowers. He cultivated them only because his clientele expected it. To him their fragrance was like the perfume on a Bourbon Street whore, sickly sweet and existentially disgusting. Why had he chosen to live in such agony? Because New Orleans was one of the ten cities, and the other nine were even worse. Would you prefer to live in Lahore or Baghdad? Mexico City or Beijing? How about Cairo? Istanbul or Lhasa? Athens and St. Petersburg wouldn't be so bad, but he didn't like cold weather and really hated Greek and Russian food. So he made the best of it in the Big Easy, with allergy shots and an array of oral medications. And there was another reason for living in New Orleans. The fates had required it. In a minute he would go down, take a double dose of Tylenol Sinus, and call a general meeting of his staff. Such meetings didn't happen often and were always darkly humorous. As he spoke to them, he would stare intently at the newer employees to see if they could hold his gaze. Few could. They were too afraid of him. It wasn't that he was unpleasant or abusive, quite the opposite. He made it a point to be kind to everyone, remembering birthdays and giving generous gifts, even when they were undeserved. At the same time, he made certain that each new employee heard the rumor that his spirit could leave his body and go on disturbing journeys. If you were dishonest or stole anything, he would come and visit you while you slept. In reality, he would never do such a thing, but the rumor was helpful. Bolstering it was his international reputation as the mentalist, the man of strange powers who could read minds. Postmodern culture was such a profitable breeding ground for paranoid nonsense. 
This convenient myth, coupled with the fact that he was a convicted murderer who had been released on technicality, had given him the most disciplined and trustworthy staff in a city known for duplicity and sloth. Of course, to utilize a management style based half on lavish generosity and half on abject terror was a lonely occupation. Ah, heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. Well, not his head. He took pleasure in psychological shock and awe, perhaps not healthy, but it was the essence of his performance style, and a man should enjoy his work. So he would meet with the staff and tell them what was coming. Before a single report appeared on television, he would inform them that soon a hurricane would arrive that would be the mother of all horrors, and they must prepare for it. Would he warn anyone else? Probably not. Oh, maybe a few close friends. Scratch that. He had no close friends. To try to warn the general population was useless. From past experience, he knew that the media would refuse to report his warning because they considered him to be a charming, handsome, psychotic, homicidal maniac who was fully capable of setting the whole world ablaze with his insane predictions. So let them depend on their politicians and satellites. He was a psychic entertainer, not a prophet. He had learned the difference the hard way. Psychic entertainers were paid large fees for their services, while prophets were stoned to death. The former was much to be preferred above the latter. Fighting the dull blur of the headache, Robert Arthur Dagan rose from the chair and moved carefully down the stairs. August 22nd, in the year of some people's Lord, 2005. He calculated that they had six days to get ready. While his staff was preparing in one way, he would prepare in another. A final phase of the Great War was about to begin.